What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome to episode number 27 of the Marine Layer podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, we're joined by Mariners catching prospect Matt Scheffler of AA Arkansas, a longtime friend of our own co-host Lyle. Matt will join us and talk about some stories in AA Arkansas about how good Lyle was at baseball in Little League and in high school as well. They went to high school together at Lake Washington, so it'll be some good stuff to get into with Matt. We'll have our three Mariners storylines of the week. We'll take a peek down on the farm and see which Mariners prospect has really performed this week. We have our MLB wraparound topics, our umpire of the week. We will close out the show with Speak Your Mind. Let's get it rolling. And we welcome you onto this edition of the Marine Layer Podcast recording here on a Monday, May 1st. Lyle, I think someone forgot to tell us about the newest highly touted pitching prospect in the Mariners system, Easton McGee, and probably what was the highlight of the week on Saturday. What were the Vegas odds on that guy to win the Cy Young? I mean, if you put a dollar down on Easton McGee, how much are you getting back if he wins the Cy Young? You're retiring. Yeah. <laughs> Hundred. Uh, so you're, you're thinking like over a million bucks. Oh, easily, easily, because his odds wouldn't even be listed. I don't the odds would be so great that Vegas wouldn't even list those odds. They wouldn't even risk the fact that someone could throw five dollars down and take eight, uh, take five million dollars out of their out of their vault at the at the at the MGM. You wouldn't want to risk that. That's that's just not good business. Well, I might throw a dollar down now after the way I saw him pitch, although unfortunately just hit the IL after one start. So maybe his odds have actually gone downward since then. We'll get into it with our three Mariners storylines, but there is a reason he was the one to start on Saturday and not another Mariners prospect that will, once this episode comes out, will have started yesterday on Tuesday, uh, but we'll touch on that a little bit. But I just want to give Easton McGee his flowers because while he's not one of our three topics this week, I mean, when you open up your phone, you turn on the radio and you turn on the TV and he's throwing a no hitter in Rogers center uh, in the sixth inning of his first, uh, his first Mariners start. You're like, how is this possible? How is this possible? But he was, he was really fabulous. And in terms of anyone, the Mariners could have brought up and in a game, they still managed to lose. I mean, still just all you could say is, wow. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I really couldn't believe what we were watching. And of course, this guy's in the big leagues for a reason, right? It wasn't his first big league outing either. He'd thrown a few innings with the Rays before this. But yeah, it was his first career start. And the fact he goes up against one of the best lineups in baseball and is just carving him up with like 90 mile an hour fastballs. It was amazing. I mean, I think they would have been happy with four innings, three earned runs out of him. Just something that would hypothetically keep them in the game. But the fact he was throwing a shutout. Yeah, that was unreal. And it's again, it's unfortunate he got hurt because now I'm kind of interested to see what he could do going forward. And he threw 65 pitches. Oh, yeah. His pitch count was ridiculously low. I mean, I understand why they pulled him, but 
if he was on a normal workload and he was a normal starter, I mean, yeah, he could have gone longer. He could have gone a complete game at that rate. So you can tell from that, uh, the, the the week that was for the Mariners didn't have a whole lot of highlights in it when, when Easton McGee really gets the crown of the week. But uh, as we record this podcast, the Mariners a chance to go into Oakland and really salvage this road trip. If they sweep, they end up somehow with a winning road trip, which we'll have to see. And um, as it goes along, I, like it, it just it, just a very, very curious week that we will uh, we'll get into here on our three Mariners storylines of the week. But regardless, four one run losses in a row is quite the opposite of what we've been used to seeing uh, each of the last two seasons. But as this first month has come to a close, the Mariners will kind of realize that. I believe they had a team meeting after the game on Saturday where Scott sat down and talked to the team um, and kind of brought something out of them where they were able to take the finale in Toronto on Sunday. Let's get to our three Mariners storylines of the week. Up first, we got the official news last week, Lyle, that Robbie Ray will be out for the season. He was going in for another checkup on his torrent on his uh, flexor injury. And the doctors looked and saw a little bit more of a tear in there for Robbie. And he's going to have to get surgery and he will now be out for the season. He is expected, though, to be back for spring training in 2024. So it's not Tommy John surgery, which if that was the case, Ray would have been out even longer than opening day of next year. But regardless, this is a brutal blow. I mean, I don't think the Mariners thought that they were going to have all five starters make every start in the rotation and in their turn again this year. That just doesn't happen. I also don't think they were preparing to lose a guy for the year. I mean, no team can prepare for that. And this is tough. I get a lot of people like to kind of give Robbie Ray a hard time. But you heard Aram talk about it when we had him on the other week. He is essentially their four starter and a guy that's a four starter and just won the Cy Young two years ago. It's a valuable guy to have, especially after the spring that he had. So yeah, this is, this is going to throw things in limbo for the Mariners a little bit. And thankfully not Tommy John, as you mentioned, the difference between the, the flexor tendon strain and a UCL strain or UCL tear is the flexor is only nine months. A UCL tear is 12 to 18 months. So if Robbie Ray has Tommy John right now, we're looking at him back at best by the all-star break of next season, which is worst case scenario for the Mariners. They can't have Robbie Ray out for that long. He's too important to their rotation. So instead, it does look like he's going to be able to get healthy probably maybe by the end of the calendar year at best case scenario. If not, definitely by spring training, he should be able to ramp it back up. Uh, and be ready to go. So what will the Mariners do in his spot now? Our next storyline will tell you a little bit more about that and more specific, but Chris Flexen was in that spot. It seemed permanently at the start, but he got removed to have Easton McGee start in that spot instead. So the Mariners were not really pleased about what they saw with Chris Flexen over his couple starts. We tried making the case for him last week, uh, but the plug got pulled after, uh, after we had that discussion. I'd just like to say one more thing here on Robbie Ray. Um, this is your fault. I've been saving this for the show. This is your fault. For when we had our prediction show, you sat up here and told people to take their mortgage and put it on the over for his strikeout total. And now we sit here and, well, you put some people out on the street if they've done that. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't have any room on the floor of my apartment. Uh, so if you, like, if you're struggling, <laughs> I'm that's my bad. You can blame me. Uh, there's nothing else I could do for it. You know, you under, as they always say, uh, you understand the risk of losing as soon as you place that bet. So 
to everyone, to everyone that is, hopefully you got a, you jumped in on a bet that had a minimum innings, uh, minimum innings and start requirement for for that bet to be, uh, to for that bet to be valid. Otherwise, I mean, the the three innings he tossed all season. Well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I mean, at the bottom of my heart, one of my coldest takes of all time. That's why you never, whenever I give you gambling advice, as you will probably learn. Follow us on social media. We try once or twice a week to dabble in some betting content. If you watch me give out some picks and you notice, wow, TJ gets a lot of picks wrong. Well, then maybe, just maybe, you should just start fading me permanently. Whenever I give picks, pick the opposite. Doesn't It doesn't matter how logical I make it sound. Just pick the opposite. Some of our good friends have made a lot of money doing just that. And they will vouch and say, hey, listen. This is a very good way to use money and to make more money. It's just fade TJ. So that's what I recommend from here on out whenever I give you gambling advice. We have a friend who was just fading you on every UFC bet ever back for a stretch of a few months in 2020 until you got to the point where you said, I'm done betting on the UFC. The sport's rigged. It is rigged. You've seen the judges. (laughs) You've seen it. And and Max Holloway's still waiting for his belt. I think you've legit lost every UFC bet you've ever placed. So for those interested, TJ no longer bets on any fighting. I don't watch it. No, it's it's stupid. It's stupid. Like what? T- explain to me the logic, Lyle, before we get back to baseball here of a guy just totally dominating through three rounds. And then the dude manages to land one perfectly placed elbow into his temple while down on the floor, getting his head hammered in and the other guy gets knocked down <laughs> and he loses. Tell me. Tell me how that is good for my wallet. I can't because I didn't ever bet on UFC. I, I knew Good, better. Smart man. Well, I think TJ's going to stick to baseball in terms of his bets for a while now going forward. Let's get to our second storyline here. So the rotation has been in flux a little bit, TJ, but some exciting news as of today, Monday, when we're recording this, they're calling up Bryce Miller, Mariners' top pitching prospect, a top 100 prospect on MLB Pipeline, getting his call to the show up from double A. So this is their solution going forward. Bryce Miller is their highest touted arm, and they're going to give him the keys to run with it. I think this works out pretty well for actually our segue here, Lyle, because I I mentioned Chris Flexen like this was going to be Chris Flexen's spot. If he was pitching well, Bryce Miller would probably not be in the big league starting right now. But instead, Chris Flexen has struggled and they haven't liked what they've seen from him. So it's going to be Bryce who's going to get to start instead. And as you noticed, Easton McGee, started on Saturday, did not want Bryce Miller. I think the reporting from Shannon Dreyer, you can go read it uh, in her latest post, I think on seattlesports.com. Shannon Dreyer reported that the Mariners were, I think were always planning after I think Flexen's last start to bring Bryce up and have him start a game. However, the rotation shook out where that spot would have landed on Saturday in Toronto. Now, you, as good as Bryce Miller is, and he looks as good as he looks in the minors, that's not where you want to start your first career game on the road in front of 45,000. Uh, instead, he's going to face the now 5-23 and 23 Oakland Athletics in front of a crowd of about 2,000 on a Tuesday night in the Bay, which is probably a little bit of an easier environment to, uh, to ease into uh, your big league career. Is this Oakland A's lineup he's about to face better or worse than the lineups he was facing down in Arkansas? It's pretty close, pretty close. My next mind, my question to you is the crowd at the ODOT Co going to be bigger or smaller than the one in Arkansas last Tuesday? I'll have to check the weather in Oakland, but 
I, honestly, there's a chance it's smaller. We talked about the other night when the A's had their game. It was their first home game after it was announced that they were moving to Vegas. And there was all the signs saying, you know, Fisher sell the team and all those things. And they reportedly had, what, 5,000 at the game? No way. I'm saying it was about half that at best. So, you know, if Arkansas has got crowds of 3,000 on a night, yeah, he's going to be seeing less people than that out in Oakland. The announced crowd last Tuesday in Arkansas for measure was 6,330. <laughs> so yeah, can so the A's top that on a Tuesday night? I mean, uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. You will know by the time you listen to this whether or not they broke it. If you haven't, didn't even think of that, please go check the MLB app and see if we were right when we guessed this. I'm saying no. I'm saying there's no way that crowd, the A's are going to draw 6,000 on a Tuesday night to watch uh, to watch M's A's. There's no way. Yeah, I'm with you. Although for Miller, though, this is exciting because when you look at his profile, and we talked to Arm about him a couple weeks ago, and Arm thinks he has the best fastball in the minor leagues. I mean, 95 to 98, it can get up to 100 miles an hour. It has some really good ride to it. He has the, the slider, which is his best secondary pitch. And look, he's had some up and down outings through the first month here. But if you read what Ryan Divish was talking about today, because he talked about this on Twitter, that he was having some conversations with some scouts and asking about Miller. And they said they think he was working on certain pitch selections in specific counts where he was trying to work through some things. And that's what the minor leagues is, right? You're trying to get better. It's not always about the results. You're trying to improve your stuff, improve your game. That's what it seems like Miller was doing in a few of those starts where he got knocked around. But his last outing, he was really good. That last outing that Miller had, he went five innings, just one earned run, eight strikeouts. And if he can do that or anything close to it in the big leagues, people are going to be pretty excited about that. I have the exact quote from Jerry Depoto last week on on what they were looking at. They said they were looking at for Bryce. They're they don't they're not going to look at his ERA in terms of this stuff. They're going to look at the quote unquote shove reports and uh, quote. They want to know how the pitchers are executing an OO counts, one one counts, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and what the physical stuff looks like and how if they're able to repeat it. So if the checklist was Bryce Miller is getting ahead in counts, the physical stuff looks good, and he's repeating his delivery and he's repeating the stuff throughout four to five innings, then no matter what the ERA is, they believe that that stuff can translate to the big leagues, and especially against the Oakland A's. I mean, <laughs> they're, they're really, really, really bad. So this is as much of a soft landing as you could ask for for a pitching prospect to, to land into the big leagues. And you know, even if he does struggle on Tuesday, the, 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 the thought process of putting Bryce Miller in this rotation and kind of easing him in and seeing what he can do against the big league lineup – uh, this would be the game to do it 100%. It wouldn't be on Friday at home when the next time his spot in the rotation would have turned around against the Houston Astros uh, next to facing the Blue Jays and Rogers Center. Playing the Astros would also be among the last of the teams that you probably want to face coming out and making your big league debut. So we'll have to see. I'm, I'm looking forward to Bryce. We'll probably see a lot of fastballs in uh, a certain mix, but I'm really excited to see how that fastball is going to play in, against a big league lineup. I think the key for Bryce is going to be, well, one, can he handle the big league workload because he hasn't thrown that many innings in pro ball? And number two, like we've talked about throughout the offseason with some of our guests, can he develop that quality third pitch? You know, Now, look, you can get away with two pitches in the majors. Some guys do it, like Tyler Glass now. Robbie Ray was doing it for a little while last year. There's a few others. But developing that third pitch, that second off-speed pitch or second breaking ball, 
that'll be a big key. And if Bryce Miller could do that, that could be the separator from being a back-end starter or a potential reliever long-term, being somebody who really sticks in their rotation and makes an impact. And the biggest thing, just please throw strikes. Please don't, you don't let the environment get to you. You don't let the the big league just turn you from, uh, the big leagues turn you from a guy who's got pretty good control to a guy who's throwing the ball over the place and, and walking five guys in his big league debut. So I think those are the couple things we're going to look at for Bryce Miller. I'm really looking forward to watching him. By the time you listen to this, you already know what Bryce Miller did on Tuesday night. Uh, so hopefully we can have some good things to talk about next week. Our third Mariners storyline of the week, Lyle, the City Connect uniforms are officially out, and it's not a hot take to say the Mariners have the best, non-biased, best City Connect uniforms in baseball. It's not a hot take on this podcast, but if you put that out on social media, you might have some people just hopping into your replies. I mean, you shouldn't expect anything to be 100% in this world on really anything ever, but I don't get what people want. I thought they did an awesome job with these jerseys. I love the blue. It's not too Pilots-esque, but there is a little bit of a throwback aspect and element to it. I like the black pants. Like, I think it's a nice little touch. You don't see that that often on baseball jerseys. I think the Mariners crushed it with these. I don't know what people's problem is. I think people just like to complain. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really understand the complaining with the black pants. I mean, it is a, it's a bit of an ode to the Tacoma Rainiers. I think the official uh, combing through, uh, combing through exactly what it is. Like, so the Seattle stitch across the front, the lettering is um, like equal to the to the pilots lettering when they were featured uh, when they when they played back uh, back in the '60s. And then the the backdrop of the Seattle, like how it has a little bit of a black. Um, has a black shadow to it. That's that's similar to the Rainiers, the, who won the PCL in 1955. So that's kind of what that plays after. And the black pants are kind of um, sort of uh, a. It plays off of that. B. I think it's also an ode to the to the Steelheads as well, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is very. So the infusion of black on the jersey and pants is the nod to the 1940 Seattle Steelheads, which is pretty sick. Again, they're trying to draw in all the different baseball aspects that the Pacific Northwest has had to offer. I did notice they pretty much stayed to the state of Washington, which is fine. It's a Seattle-based team, but but the Pacific Northwest does encompass a lot more than just the state of Washington, which I thought was a little bit interesting. But, you know, in terms of us, we're Washingtonians. We're incredibly biased and, and love our home state. So, yeah, great job. I can't wait to see him wear it. I mean, people with more heavy opinions and I guess valid opinions on just some random Twitter trolls seem to be pretty consensus that people liked it. Again, there were, there's people out there that don't, but it seems like it's more swung toward people that do. For example, I saw a lot of people talking about that. They thought they were really cool. Friend of the program, a giraffe neck Mark, he saw him, he tweeted it out and he talked about, these are awesome. These are some of the best in baseball. I mean, you think about some of the other good city connect jerseys, right? I mean, you've got the Nationals with the cherry blossoms. I like those White Sox jerseys that say Southside, the basically all black. I mean, I think the Mariners are right up there, if not right at the top with all of them. I love this color scheme. Again, some people just like to complain. What do we think of the trident down on the hat? I like it. I mean, that's how it is in the, in spring training, isn't it? It's the trident mm-hmm. down on the hat. I know some people just don't like the trident down. They think it means bad luck. Oh. Well, I haven't given that part much thought. 
let's see what their record is in the uniforms. How about that? When we get through like five or six Fridays into the year, we can we can address the record and then address the hat. See if we need to turn the Trident upside down into a W sign. There are the two Tridents on the back of the jersey as well. They they mm-hmm. they knocking my mic around. They <laughs> like they go like this. Uh, and the description for those, one of them does represent a W, meaning wins, and the other one, the W signifies the state of Washington. So I guess we could call that a win-win on uh, on that part. So which was uh, which was pretty nice. So they do try and get the good luck and the uh, and the bad luck there uh on the jersey so it was pretty nice i'm glad they came out with them and i thought they they did a pretty good job i think and i love i love the blue the blue color is awesome and thank god they didn't go white i mean the white jersey i i just feel like some of the the teams that decided to go white with their city connect jerseys just left a little bit out on the table go go have some fun lighten up let your hair down a little bit have have be adventurous with the jersey and don't don't wear something you can just wear any time of the week because every team has white jerseys you just don't need uh, another brand of that. So that's our three Mariners storylines of the week. Uh, another entertaining week of Mariners baseball and Mariners storylines, despite the the two and four record we have seen so far this past week. It has been uh, it's been pretty entertaining, especially with the City Connect uniforms. And hey, it's always good to see Twitter during a losing streak among the most entertaining times to ever uh, scroll on that app and and look. Sometimes you just have to log off. Like I want to enjoy watching the team and. And I'm not going to lie, like, yeah, there were frustrating points throughout the last week. So sometimes I just have to close out of the app so I don't read all that stuff. Because as we talk about, that place is just a cesspool, especially when they're losing. I could learn a lesson or two from you. It's going to be a fun conversation with Matt Scheffler. We have yet to record the interview with him, but it he's a good buddy of yours. Um, you guys played high school baseball together. You grew up together in Kirkland across the water from me. So... Um, it's, it's good that we're having him on our first official player on this podcast, which is nice. And what I'm really excited to talk to him about is, you know, he's at double a with all the big time arms in the system, you know, sans Taylor dollar dollars and triple a, but the rest of those guys, you know, Bryce Miller's going to come up. He's caught, I believe all of those guys down there in double a. So it'll be good to, uh, good to get some, some insight from him and, uh, and hear some background on from him as well about you. I want to learn a little bit about you there too, Lyle. We can't have the bias coming out of your mouth. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what stories he has to tell. I'm sure he's got some good ones. I mean, we've known each other since we were in second or third grade. I mean, it goes a long time back just growing up together and playing baseball together. So, you know, I'm certainly always and always will be a big fan of his. I mean, I've seen how hard he's worked over the years to make this happen. And this is something we're going to get into in the interview a little bit, too, is another reason we wanted to talk to him. He's not a household name for people that are prospect followers and maybe people outside of Kirkland. He's got a really cool story. And and I think people after hearing this will take a rooting interest in him because he's he loves baseball, works his tail off. I mean, he's got his eyes forward, everything. I mean, I mean, you'll hear him talk about it. And he's he's intelligent, he gives a lot of good answers, and and you'll hear about like what separated him from so many people as we went on and on in our time growing up in terms of what it takes to be a great baseball player. So I'm looking forward to getting this interview interview going. So with that, we won't hold you any longer. Let's get to our interview with Matt Scheffler. All right, we welcome on Mariners catcher Matt Scheffler. He's currently in AA with the Arkansas Travelers, and he's a longtime friend of mine. Chef, we, we appreciate you coming on. I've actually been holding this question, I want to say for a couple of years now, and maybe it's a stupid question, but I wanted to ask it anyway. 
when you've been in spring training the last couple of years, you've been there with Justice Sheffield. Have there been times where somebody said, hey, chef, and like both you guys turn around and say, what's up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it happened a lot uh, this spring because it's my first big league camp. And uh, he's obviously known as chef to all the big league staff and all the big league players. But I've I've also been called chef my whole life. So it's a head snapper every time I hear it. And then I quickly realized that nobody's trying to talk to me in big league camp. So uh, I just see him respond, and that's about it. So what do they call you? Uh, it was Chef also, but you just kind of had to be, make an eye contact with the person, or else uh, it wasn't you. That almost sounds like a little bit like uh, we haven't had him on, but just from watching some of his TikToks, Sam Carlson, and I'm, I'm sure you know him a little bit, where all of his content's about um, – Oh, like nobody's going to bother me because I like I'm a pro at riding the bench or whatever. That almost makes it sound like what people kind of treat you like in, in big league spring. Right. I mean, no, it was a, it was a cool experience. But uh, yeah, being one of the minor league catchers and a catcher heavy staff. Uh, yeah, probably similar to that. What was your you know, oh shit ahead, yeah. moment in spring training? What like the oh, like someone walks past you. And you have to stop there for a second and go, oh, my God, that's like that's that's who that actually is. Uh, probably no players. But I mean, it's just like Ichiro was there every day. He's really cool. Uh, and the cool one was uh, seeing Edgar Martinez. That was pretty cool just because he's, he's not usually there for too long. I think he only comes for about a week every spring and then uh, and then he'll head out. But. Yeah, I mean, that was probably, I think that was my first time, like, meeting him, meeting him and seeing him and uh, talking to him in person. You know, we've known each other forever. I mean, for those who don't know and are just listening, I mean, you grew up in Kirkland. We grew up playing Little League together, high school ball together. Um, and I didn't know till the last couple of years. Somehow you hid this from me or from everybody, for that matter. You've got some ridiculous athletic roots in your family, dude. I mean, I mean, you're, first off, your older brother played division one ball. So that's enough in itself, but you want to dig deeper into your family roots. You've got NFL tight ends, NBA centers, and a world renowned golfer all within your family trees. So like, what's the tie between all those guys? Uh, I've never heard this. So I only know there's one official tie, which is uh Scheffler from the Sonics, Steve Scheffler. That's a, that's mm -hmm. one that I know is official, but I, uh, I would kind of just BS with people, tell them that uh, Tony Scheffler was my cousin. Not sure if there's actually a resemblance, but he's from Wisconsin and my dad's from Minnesota. So I'm sure there's some, maybe some sort of family tie going back. And uh, yeah, absolutely no relation between me and Scotty. Oh, so you and your brother Joe are just oh. fooling everybody with that? Every time. Every time. Oh, so Every you've time. been tricking me all this <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, there's no way. If you look at my golf game and you look at his golf game, you'd think that. Uh, one person should probably never pick up a cup again. <laughs> Man, so you've been, yeah, you've been pulling a fast one on everybody then because I see all your Instagram stories and stuff. And I mean, like Scotty Scheffler won the Masters last year and I'm seeing you guys like post about him and tweet about him and I just figured, right? And actually, I think on your Auburn bio, I thought on there it yeah. said something about Tony Scheffler yeah. being related, but maybe you were just kidding. Yeah, put that on there and just, why, why not? Maybe somewhere down the line, you know? <laughs> well, maybe that's why you hit it from me all these years because it was um again it was only half true yeah. i mean hey, who, knows? Yeah. What, who knows well do you think you would have won d1 as a golfer if scotty was actually in your family do you think you actually would have had enough 
Oh man, uh, I don't know. Considering he's only what a year older than I am, which is crazy to think about. Uh, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say it worked out okay in baseball, to say the least. Um, so far, so good. You know, if we wanted to get into it a little bit here and, and some of the nitty gritty baseball stuff, and for the most part, we certainly want to talk about maybe a little bit of your time at Auburn, certainly your time with the Mariners. But, you know, I did want to get one high school ball question in there, because for anybody that doesn't know you as well and, and doesn't kind of know your story, I think you've got a pretty cool one, which is, you know, growing up, you were always good, but, you know, you weren't the kid traveling around to showcases and baseball baseball northwest events or anything like that i mean you only started full-time one year on varsity and it's funny i remember a conversation that you and i had i want to say it was after our junior year and you would split time the year before and you'd had a solid year but you were kind of like or i should add the kid you played with was younger than us back at catcher and you were like yeah i don't i don't really have intentions to do that again like i'm gonna go make this happen so i can start and it's my job or whatever and then you come out the next year and you didn't just win the job. You were like one of the best players in the whole state. And that's when I feel like everything started to kind of take off for you. So I guess my question is here, long story short, what was it either that summer or that fall going into our senior year where something just changed in your work ethic or, or your mindset, I guess? Uh, I don't know. I guess it was just kind of a right timing thing. I was just uh, like I grew late. I was pretty small junior year. And then that summer going into my senior year, I kind of hit a little growth spurt, put on a little bit of weight. And I was like, okay, this could be like a real thing if I want to do it. And uh, yeah, I just held myself accountable. My parents held me accountable. They wanted to you know, be as supportive and as positive as they could and push me to be the best I could. And yeah, it just turned out that the hard work paid off that way. Did your like work, did your workouts change at all or anything? I actually don't, haven't heard all this, like, like, or any, anything you did at the plate behind the plate. Like, did you change any of that stuff that year? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I didn't really take the gym super seriously, uh, throughout high school. I mean, just, I was always so small and they kind of, no matter what I did in the weight room when I was that young, like never really changed. But yeah, that off season going into my senior year, I, if I remember correctly, was maybe working out four or five times a week. And, uh, that's when I started to see real progress. Okay. Matt, so you that wasn't. Oh, go, no, ahead, go ahead. TJ. Sorry, Lyle. You, you're still going. I, I was just going to say that if if that wasn't taken working out seriously back then, like what does seriously working out look like now? Now that you're playing pro ball, I mean, it's you have a completely different outlook on it because now it's actually my job. It's something I have to do if I want to continue making money playing baseball. So it's either do that and continue making money, or maybe take a few days off and not benefit from that whatsoever. Matt, I know Lyle's not going to gas himself up with this, but you guys won a state title together in 2016. And I want you to tell everyone how crucial Lyle's role was on that 2016 <laughs> state championship team. Oh, Lyle was the vibes guy throughout the whole team, without a doubt. I mean, it was just everybody on that team was, I mean, it was, kind of cheesy to say but it was a it was a brotherhood we were all like extremely close like everybody had a good relationship with everybody there was never any beef or any clicks throughout the dugout or anything it was just everybody came to the field every day did their thing and i mean just gelled perfectly 
Oh, so was you're being always nice. at the was he always at the front of the line when you got back and you scored? Was he like he's the first guy out of the dugout, right? First Every guy, time. It didn't matter who it was. First, it was the first face you'd see for a high five. See, he's being nice. What I was telling TJ before you hopped on was I was like the worst bunner in the history of the universe. <laughs> I mean, there were times there were times where we'd be out there and I'd have to drop down a few bunts to start a round of BP. And I would shock myself that I didn't just get like thrown off the field after trying to uh, drop down a couple bunts where it was like, how did you make it this far on a baseball field or, or whatever? But, um, but yeah, no, that, that season was always a lot of fun. And, and, um, you know, I think we'll always hold memories of it. Well, I'm but, shocked you didn't break your nose. How did you not honestly, foul one yeah. back into your face? I mean, that would probably require making contact with a bunt first. I would just straight up uh, miss true. half of them that I took, <laughs> but but yeah. Okay, so what's that? Bunting was overrated in high school anyway. Oh, see, that's that's the whole um that's the whole theme of our podcast is like TJ and I just roll our eyes watching bunting in big league games. So maybe maybe I was just before my time. Maybe I knew maybe maybe I knew it wasn't worth the time or, or whatever. Yeah, time, but, time uh, and the place. Time and the place. It's rare, but time and the place. Yeah, exactly. Um, if we wanted to start to kind of roll along here, I mean, so we touched on the high school stuff a little bit. Obviously, you spent two years at Juco Ball, then you get to Auburn. I mean, I'm sure that wasn't the only place you were kind of getting recruited after your two years of junior college, but what made you pick Auburn out of all your choices? Uh, yeah, there's a few other smaller schools, uh, no other Power Five schools, and it was kind of late. Auburn kind of came into the picture uh, later on. Uh, it was actually through my brother because he was committed to Old Dominion and uh, Auburn's recruiting coordinator when he was recruiting me used to be an assistant coach at Old Dominion and the Old Dominion coach gave Carl Nonamaker, the coach at Auburn my name and kind of through the grapevine that way uh, he kind of just called my coach at junior college and then uh called me and they flew out for a, like a one day private workout type deal. And then we got a, a visit set up. And I, I don't know if you've ever been to any SEC baseball schools or stadiums, but I mean, you see it and like, you're like, yeah, I'm, I want to go here. <laughs> it was, it was awesome. Okay. What was the coolest non Auburn SEC stadium you played at? Non-Auburn or mm-hmm. SEC? Take an Auburn out just because, like, I'm sure you have a bias toward it, yeah, which you should, probably, obviously. Probably Mississippi State because we played there. I, our series there was the first home series with the whole thing, like their whole new stadium, brand new, open. So that was that was pretty cool. It was like 16,000 people there or something like that that whole weekend. That was that was a cool See, lot. See, Lyle and I and our friends say that eventually we would like to go hit one of those stadiums. I think that probably is number one on our list because I don't know when else we would ever go to Starkville for right. anything maybe ever. Really so, else for anything but to go maybe watch a football game or a baseball yeah. game. Yeah. So I, I was thinking, so Starkville's one, Oxford, like the two Mississippi stadiums seem like two of the most fun. I know Florida's got a really nice one. Uh, I mean, the box at LSU is supposed to be insane as well and probably a little bit easier to get to than the two Mississippi ones. But on, on those five, I don't know if there's any sleepers in that group that you've uh, seen as well. 
I never played at Florida. Um, Arkansas was up there with Bomb Stadium. I'd say that's right behind Mississippi State, just because, like, facilities-wise. Texas A&M was really cool. Uh, Never played at Alabama. Never played at Tennessee. Vanderbilt was extremely underwhelming. Uh, Really? Yeah. It was just kind of, I mean, for as much of a baseball school as they are, uh, I was just expecting a little more, but. I mean, damn good baseball team. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you pretty much hit it on the head. Mississippi, or Ole Miss is really cool. That's probably the best, uh, like, best fan base for baseball, I'd say. Just because how close they are to the field and how much they get into it with that student section in right field. Oh, yeah, because what's the Ole Miss story with the fan base? Because, like, it's like when somebody on Ole Miss hits a home run, everybody out on the berm, like, chucks their beer yeah, into just, the air or something like that, right? Showers, yeah, it's just no matter what's in your cup, you just throw it out. Anytime, <laughs> anytime someone on Ole Miss hits a home run, yeah, it starts smelling like a, like a brewery. <laughs> I was going to say, I can't even imagine being an outfielder out there for, like, seven, eight innings or whatever after somebody goes yard, and it probably just smells like, I don't know, like a dive bar or something like that. No kidding. Smells. Man. Could you imagine what they're saying to you? Yeah, usually, usually the fans are pretty good, especially to. Uh, oh, that's good. I mean, they're young college kids. It's not like it's a uh, pro ball or anything, so they take it easy on you. Like the fans at Mississippi State was awesome. I mean, they were mm-hmm. barbecuing stuff. They're like, come back, come back after the game, and we'll give you leftovers and stuff. So it was pretty, it was pretty good. They, they treat they treat you pretty well around there. That's really cool. You know. So if we wanted to keep going here, so 2020 happens, right? And and you're off to this phenomenal start in your second year at Auburn. Then the season gets canceled. The draft gets shortened to five rounds. And I guess the one upside, if there's a such thing to having the draft shortened is people like you, you got like a little bit more of your own pick of where you wanted to go. I guess it depends on where you got um, not, I mean, recruited is not the right word, but looked at or who had interest in you in terms of the MLB teams. And obviously growing up, like growing up in Seattle, I'm sure it was a pretty cool thing to sign with your hometown team, but there has to be more than that for why the Mariners were an intriguing team to sign with. So like what, yeah, what kind of stood out about the Mariners to you when you were trying to make that decision? Uh, it was actually, my agent did an amazing job with uh, kind of like laying out org by org on uh, like what catchers or what uh, teams have catchers in their top 30 prospects which teams have the most money invested in catchers versus which teams don't have much money invested in catchers, uh, catcher development, player development in general. Uh, and they kind of just laid out a full list with uh, like grades on which teams would be a good fit for me. So uh, yeah, he made it really easy that way. And then it was kind of a pick between three teams and I was like, man, Seattle would be really cool. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, Clearly made the right choice. So you get to pro ball then. Who was the first bullpen you caught where you realized, oh my God, like this stuff is like just on another level. Like I, it's almost hard to like to track this movement. So I didn't get a first pro ball season until 21. But when I got, when I signed my free agent deal, I got sent down to the fall instructs that they had that year in 2020. Uh, which was just like six weeks down in the spring training complex. And we just played other, uh, other orgs just on the backfields or spring training stadiums. But, uh, 
God, I can't even remember who was there for pitchers. Uh, I mean, I was roommates with Matt Brash. That was his first year. I room I roomed with him before he was the Matt Brash. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you catch him? I did. I caught one of his bullpens on those first days. Uh, he didn't throw much. He was he was still doing some build up stuff because COVID shut everybody down. But uh, gosh, I can't remember what pitchers we had there. So is his slider then? You've caught his slider. Is 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 it the best pitch in baseball history? As as we've been told. Uh, so I haven't faced him, but I've heard that catching him is a whole different, or hit facing him in the box is a whole different ball game than catching him. Like I heard, like the pitch just looks absolutely completely ridiculous, like from inside the batter's box. I've never had the chance to face him, but uh, I've caught him, and I don't, I don't really have any aspirations of standing in the box. <laughs> well, I'll I'll tell you what. You're not alone because neither does Jose Ramirez, who's one of the best hitters in the world, and Brash made him fall in the seat of his pants on opening night. So. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, looking at his stats now, I don't think anybody really wants to get in there and face him because he's punching guys out at a crazy rate right now. Man, it's crazy. What did your What did your offseason look like after fall instructs that first year in 2020 where, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's still some stuff in limbo, right? And maybe you're forced to do some stuff on your own and there's not a set program yet. Like, how did you make that work? where you didn't lose any ground and, and with that gain some ground heading into spring training that first year. Uh, so yeah, the managers are super good about uh, off season stuff and they'll send you like uh, stuff you need to improve on and kind of like a whole, uh, like a roadmap of stuff that you need to improve on, how to improve it. Like what are the action steps to take to improve it? So they give you a really good layout and all that stuff. And then, I mean, weight room's pretty much on your own. It's kind of just, it's not required, but it is required. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody would argue that extremely important, but uh, yeah, it was kind of a shorter, shorter off season for me just because we got done in early November and then spring training was right around the corner in April. And then when you start to get rolling, right? I mean, I've actually wanted to ask you this for probably a year now or so since it kind of got implemented. Cause I, I haven't had a chance to ask, many people about this, specifically many catchers about this, but how much have you gotten to toy around with Pitchcom a little bit? Cause like, I mean, you hear about it and you get to read about it a little bit, but I'm guessing you've actually got to, to some extent use it. Like, do you like it? I love it. I think it's the, okay. if, there's, if there's a way to speed up the game, it's going to be that way mm-hmm. without a doubt. Don't get me wrong. Pitch clock works. Pitch clock is great. I got no problem with the pitch clock. Uh, and if you'd ask any other player, I think that they would also agree with that. Uh, but yeah, if they're if they're looking for another way to speed up the game instead of two pickoff rule or whatever other stuff they've implemented, I think the next step is going to be allowing pitch clock at every level or uh, pitch calm at every level, just because I mean runner gets on second. Uh, I mean you're given three different sign sequences, and if the pitcher shakes, it's a step off, and then it's a full another full another thing again. Uh, I mean, you just click a button. Nobody's there's no more sign stealing. There's no nothing like that. It's uh, it just has to be the most seamless way to call pitches. What was the biggest thing you had to change when, say, the pitch clock came in and like the pitch com and the pitch clock both, as you said, like really speed up the game. But all part of being a catcher is like you're you're almost like you know a commander out there on the infield, making sure everyone is 
everyone's set and working with the pitcher. And you got a lot of things to think about, a lot of things to communicate, a lot of things to keep track of on the base paths. But all of a sudden, it's now condensed from however long you want into 15 seconds with no one on and 20 seconds with a guy on. So where do you like what was the biggest adjustment to uh, to to making your I guess your thoughts more efficient and still managing to uh, work with a pitcher and keep track of everyone, everyone on the base paths as well? Uh, nothing really changed that much, honestly. It took about, I'd say probably about a month for everybody to get used to it. It was definitely a big uh, learning curve, but uh, I mean, you kind of just—it's like getting used to anything new. It's just you gotta learn how to think quicker, uh, but also realizing that we're not the only ones that are on the clock too. If there's a guy on the base, he doesn't have all this time. The batter in the box doesn't have as much time to step out. I mean, he has to be in the box before the pitcher even has to be on the rubber. So uh, it's a lot more time than you actually think. Everybody's freaking out about it, including myself at the start. Like, it's a terrible rule. Like, yeah, it's going to speed up the game, but it's also going to ruin the game. And I think everybody that said that has been completely wrong just because everybody's adapt to it, adapted to it because they realize that it's here to stay. And uh, by them putting it in the big leagues this year, uh, that just confirms it even more. Have you gotten called for a pitch clock violation? Uh, so I have never been called as a hitter. No, we've had a few pitchers that happens to. I mean, that's just it's just gonna happen to everybody a few times. But uh, as a hitter, I've never been called for it. But I've been in the box when a pitcher has been called for it uh, quite a few times, actually. There's some teams that are Anybody? better at it than others, but uh, yeah, mo- usually everybody's pretty pretty standard. People gotten used to it by now in the sense of like, okay, like pitch clock violations happen or there's still guys getting, you know, irked out there where it kind of rattles them. Yeah, there's there's some. I mean, there's some hitters that are just completely oblivious to the clock and then they'll kind of just zone out for a sec and then boom, they get banged on it and then they got a strike and they're like, oh crap, like that's on me. And then there's some times where like umps will be quick on the trigger and like bang a pitcher for it and then there's like a little dialogue between the pitcher and the ump or the catcher and the ump, and then it kind of just all blows over. Matt, let's talk a little bit about the arms down there at double-A. So we want to ask about all of them, but since there's some news breaking, like you you guys obviously knew a little bit earlier than we did, but the news is now out. It's being reported on that Bryce Miller will start when you're listening to this podcast. This will release on Wednesday. He'll start on Tuesday, but you know, just want to fill in a little bit about what makes Bryce such a good prospect as someone who's caught him uh, and seen his rise throughout the minor leagues. What, I guess, start off in general, uh, really, like what makes Bryce such a such a good prospect and why you think he he's going to be successful in the big leagues? I just think it's the way he carries himself. It's just, it's just like I said, he could have given up 10 runs or he could give up no runs and we'll be the same exact guy coming off the field every single time. It's just the way, he, the way he carries himself and the way he handles his emotions. Uh, he does it at a big league level, and I think it shows like greatly on the field. Yeah, we've what talked really. What go what ahead? Really, so his fastball is is like his notable pitch. Is it is the pitch that everyone raves about, and it, it's what scouts and, and analysts say. Like this is what ma- like in terms of stuff, this is what makes him a big leaguer. As a from a catching perspective, like really. What makes that pitch so great? What is it that he does with that pitch that makes it that dominant? Uh, he throws it extremely hard. He gets an insane amount of ride, and he can put it just about anywhere he wants. 
it's just it's it's a very tough pitch to hit. I mean, he throws it in the upper 90s uh, consistently. Uh, yeah, he gets about 20 to 22 inches of uh, vertical movement, and just yeah, like he said, he does crazy command with that in all of his pitches. As a matter of fact. His slider's taken a lot of steps too, hasn't it? I mean, I know that's kind of his go-to breaking pitch, but it seems like nowadays it just continues to get better and better. Yeah, so he's got two different sliders. He's got a short gyro one that he throws really hard at about 89, 90. And then he's got a big uh, a big sweeper that he calls the cannonball. Uh, and he throws that as a sweeping slider that's a little bit slower, but it moves like crazy. Uh, I mean, he's just every single day he's working to get better and as longer and longer as he keeps going in his career I just think his stuff is never going to have a never going to stop he's, he has an extremely high ceiling is that gyro slider is that almost like a cutter yeah it's I wouldn't quite call it a cutter because there's not as much uh, uh, vertical movement uh, but essentially yeah it's more of a bigger cutter that he Throws a little bit slower than an actual cutter, uh, but yeah, it's it's pretty deceptive. If we were going to touch on a couple of the other guys here as well, because I mean, Bryce Miller's been awesome, and I think everybody's excited to see him debut in the big leagues. But those Double A starters, I mean, there's some dudes down there, and and you get to catch a bunch of them. So we were hoping to at least get a two to three sentence synopsis on a couple more of them. So I was we were just going to roll down the list here of another yeah. couple, but. Um, but yeah, so Emerson Hancock, I know he's battled injuries the last year or two. He's healthy now. He's off to a really good start. I mean, what have you noticed about the strides that he's made from last year to this year so far? Uh, Emerson's one of those guys that is probably the hardest worker that you'll ever meet. Uh, from the weight room to the train room to his catch play, the guy's just obsessed with baseball, and it's absolutely showing last year, and it's absolutely showing again this year. Uh, just all of his stuff is extremely dominant. I mean, his fastball is the mid to upper nines. He's got a really good slider that he commands extremely well and has an insanely deceptive changeup that grades out beyond uh, a lot of big league arms. What about Brian Wu? He just came away with the Mariners minor league pitcher of the month, and he has really been a story of Mariners pitching development, and he's really been thriving down there at Double A. So, what makes him so like? What has allowed him to take this step? Uh, I think for him, it was just staying healthy. Uh, his stuff has always been good. It's improved a lot this year too. Uh, but I mean, it's another guy that throws mid to upper nines consistently, uh, and he's just a freak athlete. And whatever he wants his body to do, it'll do. Uh, he gets into some crazy positions and has great command for all of his pitches and it's just when he's on he's on it's really fun to watch then the last guy we we're hoping to ask about is freelander barroa where if you listen to harry ford talk about him back in spring training he was like that is the deadliest arm i've seen all spring and the stuff that he has i know is pretty ridiculous so does it pop out to you when you're behind the plate catching him it does yeah it comes in uh not actually harder than the others, but it feels it feels like it is. It's got some jump to it. I I have one more more pitcher, Matt. How much have you caught Taylor Dollard? Uh, I caught him for about seventeen games last year. Yeah. I think I caught him. In so again, 
So as we talked about the other guys, I mean, you say hard with really sharp breaking stuff, but Taylor's, he's not that. He's not a guy who's going to run it up there in the upper 90s. He's going to more, you know, dot the corners and stuff. But, you know, he's still probably going to pitch in the big leagues like that. So, like, what what is it about the control of Taylor that, you know, that makes him so good and able to control his pitches, like almost like he's like holding it on a string? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much exactly what it is. He fills up his own. Uh, and gets just a lot of weak contact. He's not a huge strikeout numbers guy, but Dollars could probably roll out of bed with a blindfold on and throw a strike. It it doesn't matter what the situation is, who's at the plate, what stadium he's in, what the weather is. That guy's, you know, that guy's going to get on the mound. He's going to dominate and he's going to throw strikes. I've got one more question for you before we kind of wrap. We'll, we'll tie this whole interview up and wrap it up in a little bit of a fun way, but. One more question for you is is maybe for those who don't pay that close attention. Like the minor leagues is really a grind between the hours, the time you have to put into it, everything. So maybe you can give people a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. For you, let's say you're starting behind the plate. It's a seven o'clock game. What does your day look like from when you get to the ballpark to first pitch? Uh, seven o'clock game. I'll probably get to the field. I'd probably say 12.30-ish cages, early cages would probably open at 1 or one thirty. So I'd get there and do my movement prep routine, uh, go hit in the cages for a little bit, come back in, hang out for a little, uh, and then go stretch, uh, ground balls, infield, outfield, and then hit BP. Come back in, have the hitters meeting on the pitch we're facing that night. Have the pitchers meeting with the lineup that we'll be facing that night. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much that. Right into more stretching and then right into my pregame routine. Yeah, I mean, and then game from 7 o'clock to anywhere from 9.30 to 10 o'clock. Uh, some post work in the training room. You're probably getting home around 1130 every night. How much extra stuff do you have to do? Also, just being a catcher, going over scouting reports. I mean, how much time do you have to carve out for that stuff each day? Uh, the members are super good about it. They got a bunch of statistics and stuff, so we don't have to do all the deep diving. But uh, and we got a kick-ass pitching coach that is extremely good at his job. Uh, I mean, you face the lineup six times in a week you kind of start to get a feel for some of the guys. So it gets easier and easier as it goes on. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's no, it's no easy job. You definitely got to get your work done. One last minor leagues question from me. Who's the nastiest guy you have faced down there? Hmm. This year or just in general? It could be in general. In general? Uh, Oh, some pretty good arms that we saw in double A last year and then this year already too. Uh Gavin Stone from the Dodgers was he was pretty nasty last year. That change up is no joke. Uh yeah, I'd probably I'd probably say Gavin Stone. It's pretty good no, choice. He's jet- yeah, and he's generated a lot of buzz in the Dodgers world these days. So that's a good answer. Uh, okay, so if we were going to start to kind of wrap this up, we're going to start to do this with any players that we have on 
present and future. I guess you'll kind of be our guinea pig with this, but we're going to wrap interview up every interview up by asking five rapid fire questions and you can just give us a quick answer. So we we've got them prepped for you. So hopefully, hopefully this goes smoothly and hopefully this can give people a little bit more of a peek behind the door of uh, who you are. So, okay. First one I've got is go to pregame and postgame meal. Uh, not really up to me. It's up to our uh, training staff or whoever orders the food, kind of whatever comes for pregame, postgame, I'll eat it. Okay, so let me let me twist that question a little bit. If you got to pick what your pregame and postgame meal would be, what would it be? I got to pick, uh, I would probably some like chicken and rice dish, probably before the game, something light. And then postgame, uh, probably just like some pasta or something like that. Pretty good. I'm a simple guy. We could some we could just simplify that to Chipotle, right? Uh, I don't know about Chipotle. Chipotle kind of sits heavy sometimes. I don't know if I'd want that pregame. Oh, okay. Post game, I take Chipotle definitely. Pregame, okay. some some a little lighter. Okay. All right. The next question, Matt. Uh, your top three favorite TV shows of all time. Top three favorite TV shows of all time. Uh, Entourage is number one. Uh. Probably Breaking Bad number two, and then probably Yellowstone number three. Wow. Okay. No Game of Thrones in there. Interesting. Okay. Okay. I got into it for a few seasons. Wow. I fizzled out, and I just never got back into it. Wasn't the biggest fan. I'm gonna get hate for that for sure. I I do all the time. Matt. Matt. I've 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 watched it through four times, so That's yeah, pretty, probably pretty, the wrong person I've, to. I've uh, watched the first three episodes probably six times, and it took me that long to get through them. So <laughs> that sounds about right. It was so boring. I was just like, the rest of the show is probably exactly. Well, I'll tell you what. You just gave me three new shows to watch, which is probably sad that I haven't watched any of those three between Entourage, Breaking Bad, and and Yellowstone. But now I've got three on the list on the bucket list to knock off. Take up some time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, third question. Best and worst baseball road trip? Best and worst baseball road trip? Uh, best is probably Wichita. Okay. Super showy stadium, super showy clubhouse. They uh, treat the guys really well there. Really nice facilities, really nice field. Really nice hotel. Uh, hotels walking distance to the field, so that's nice. Uh, and the wind howls out there, so it's a fun park to be mm-hmm. at. Worst, without a doubt, is San Jose in the Cal League. Ter- tough. Really bad field. Old stadium, old wooden stadium. Clubhouse is a glorified bedroom size, pretty much. Then you <laughs> shove 32, 35 guys in there. It's It gets real tight real quick. It's just so fun. <laughs> nice hotel, but just you just... You didn't really didn't really want to be at that field. Oh, geez. Okay. Next question. Uh, what would you be doing right now, Matt, if you were not playing baseball? Right now, if I wasn't playing baseball, what I always say is I'd probably just be working construction. Uh, <laughs> probably doing that. I don't really see myself sitting at a desk or anything for nine hours a day, and. Uh, more of like a hands-on physical labor type guy. So yeah, I always just say if I wasn't playing baseball, I'd probably be working construction. Okay. So I was slightly off. I had a guess on this one before you hopped on. I said it was going to be something with cars, but okay. Construction isn't that far off. Yeah. Yeah. 
I could I could see myself doing that too, but mm-hmm. definitely good money and uh, just something I kind of had interest in. Sure. Okay, and then last one to wrap this thing up is favorite all-time Mariner. It can be past or present. So it can be a teammate or just somebody you love growing up watching. All-time Mariner. Um, probably Edgar Martinez. I mean, I could say the cliche answer of Ken Griffey Jr., but uh, I mean, Edgar Martinez, watching him swing the bat was crazy. I'm just one of the best to ever do it and I mean I don't think anybody ever hated him uh and just now especially now that I got to meet him too just knowing the kind of guy he is it's just probably him with an honorable mention to Dan Wilson if he listens to this at all oh there we go (laughs) there we go I mean hey great if he did (laughs) yeah catchers catchers got to stick together yeah Dan's the man he was with us all spring training he's I mean they call him Dan the man for a reason sure well, Chef, this has been awesome. I mean, we obviously appreciate you taking the time to hop on. As you know, I'm always rooting for you, and and I'm one of your biggest hype people. We're, I mean, we can't wait to watch you keep thriving. And hey, I'll throw this out there too. I'm stealing this from a certain other sports podcast that I think the three of us all listen to. If you ever see anybody giving you hate online, you can send it our way, and we'll jump in the replies for you. So that way you don't have to. Yeah, I'm not giving you any of my contract money, though. All right, that's fair. So we don't get the Josh Allen money, but <laughs> but we'll still hop in the replies for you. <laughs> well, Chef, thanks again, buddy. This has been great, and um, we can't wait to watch you the rest of the way. Absolutely. It was fun. I appreciate you guys having me on. That was a great interview with Matt Scheffler. As always, we appreciate all of our guests taking the time. We, re- we really enjoyed talking with them, and it's cool to get a player on after all these months now, and hopefully we can start to get some more. Okay, TJ, let's head down on the farm. Who are you looking at this week? Tyler Locklear, the first time we're bringing him up this year, the number 10 prospect in the Mariners system, a guy who they drafted in the second round of last year's draft. I'm I'm like I'm intrigued with him because they draft him as a bat first guy at a VCU, the highest drafted player at a VCU uh, in the last 18 years. And he's continuing to really hit this year in high A ever. He's, he's hitting <laughs> 305, 383, 537, four home runs, 17 RBIs. His last game before we recorded this, uh, he had a multi-home run game against Spokane. Um, and he's uh, he is right in the midst of an eight-game hit streak. He's 12 of 32, th- uh, hitting 375, those two home runs uh, yesterday on Sunday, nine RBIs, uh, second career multi-home run game. He had 11 total bases. The dude really hits... And I didn't realize this, so I went and I looked back at his MLB pipeline profile, and Dan O'Dowd compared him to Pete Alonso when he was drafted last year on the on their broadcast when they drafted him. You know, as a bat first guy, we see that he's going to be profiling as a corner infielder in the Mariners system. And there's just, as we see, there's just not a whole lot of pure bats in the Mariners system to to rely upon. So it would be really nice if a bat first guy, the Mariners pick with a premium pick. Turns out to be, you know, a pretty good hitter up and down the minors, and he's off to a pretty good start there in high A this year. So he's a, he's a guy to keep an eye on. Again, a top 10 prospect in the M system, and a guy who really, he just hits. 920 OPS through 20 games. I think the Mariners will take it. And again, this was a college bat. 
He'll be able to develop a little bit faster than the high school guys. But when we were talking about Cole Young, who, by the way, he's also just continuing to hit little side note. We've talked about we're not sure how much longer it's going to be that he stays in Modesto. He may be too good for the league. They'll bring him up to Everett. Now, it's only been 20 games for Locklear this season in Everett. But don't be shocked if by June, sometime in the month of June, he's up in Arkansas. Because again, college bat, he is polished. He is destroying the ball in Everett right now. And he may just hit his way to the majors if he can stay on a fast track here. I mean, Pete Alonzo's a decent mm-hmm. comp. I guess I look at both him and Hogan Windish as kind of Ty France guys where they're corner infielders. I guess Windish plays a little bit of second base, but bat first, have some pop. I mean, it's exciting. I mean, it's exciting to have some bats in the system and, and Locklear may move his way up pretty fast if he, if he continues to swing it. And I think what people are a little bit more high on with, say, a a Locklear than a Ty France is his power. I think they they Mm -hmm. really believe he can hit for a decent amount of power up and down the minor, something that, you know, Ty France got some decent pop, but he's, you know, not Pete Alonso. So that's a thing there. So that's something to look out for. And it's good to see him really get it yesterday with the with a couple home runs. He'll be a guy to keep looking at for sure, because second round pick. Really good bat. We'll see what he does the rest of the year. It may not be the last time we talk about him either, the way he's playing. Okay, my guy, Brian Wu, who, by the way, just got named Mariners Minor League Pitcher of the Month here in the month of April. That's the guy I'm highlighting this week because he turned in a really good start his last time out. Five innings pitched, one hit, no runs, no walks, eight strikeouts in his last start. The guy here so far in the month of April and so far here during the season 159 ERA and four starts, 17 innings, 159 ERA. He's killing it right now. Mariners number six overall prospect. He's dominating in double A so far. 27 strikeouts in 17 innings. He, we talk about like ceiling with these pitchers. Bryce Miller is going to start when you're listening to this. He would have already started yesterday. I mean, he's a top 100 prospect. He's the top pitching prospect in the Mariners system. The guy we keep hearing about from a lot of people, like we have a friend who works in the organization and Jerry DePoto and, you know, people writing about it on Twitter is this guy, Brian Wu, in terms of stuff and the ability to eventually pitch at the big league level. He's that guy. I mean, he is going to pitch in the big leagues. He got kind of a slow start to his Mariners career. He was hurt coming out of college and kind of got brought along last year. But now he's off to a full start this year. He's healthy and he is really pitching well. He, they might just leave him in Arkansas all year, but if they don't need him, they probably just leave him in Arkansas all year and let him dominate and then worry about bringing him up to the big leagues this year because there's all, there's a couple guys ahead of him in the system who they would probably bring up in a, in a starter role or even in the bullpen as well. But this dude's got big league stuff, and he's really showed it throughout his minor league career so far. The Mariners may have gotten some real value on him when they drafted him too because they drafted him in the sixth round back in 2021. Because he had Tommy John surgery and he's recovered from it now and he looks great. But I wonder where he goes in that draft if he's healthy. I'm guessing the injury knocked him down at least a little bit. The Mariners may have bought everything that he was selling, said, you know what? We'll wait out the injury. Tommy John surgery is awesome these days. Guys almost always recover and we may get some real value on them and see what we've got going forward. And they've done that. I mean, there's been teams calling and asking for Brian Wu in trades over the last year. That's how much other people, that's how much other organizations are starting to think of him. What's kind of odd, Lyle, this is the first time I'm looking at Brian Wu's college stats. Do you know his junior year ERA? 
Like this is in terms of like the Mariners looking at stuff and saying, hey, we can do something with this. I mean, ERA is not everything. He had a 611 ERA his junior year mm-hmm. at Cal Poly. Again, you're not, you know, like not pitching the SEC, pitching Cal Poly. And, you know, they saw enough there in Brian Wu, despite being hurt, to draft him and really develop him and bring him along. And man, it is really showing. And I'm excited to watch him. I, it's it's hard to keep up with all these minor league guys. There's a lot of baseball going along, uh, going on while they play. But every time you see the highlights pop up, and this dude has just got some nasty stuff. And I think it's something for a lot of Mariner fans to look forward to as the season goes along. So that's our look down on the farm. One guy that stands out uh, each week down in the Mariners minor league system. Let's get to our MLB wraparound. First up on the MLB wraparound, didn't realize this was being played last weekend, uh, but part of the MLB World Tour, the Padres and Giants played the first ever games in Mexico City, and it was an offensive, uh, what's the right word to use? Offensive explosion, offensive shit show. Like it was Saturday's game, especially was absolutely insane between the two teams, provided some very, very entertaining baseball. There were 11 home runs hit in that first game. 27 runs and 11 homers were hit in that game. You think Coors Field's a hitter's park with the elevation? Playing that in Mexico City makes Coors Field look like T-Mobile Park. I mean, this was ridiculous. The, the balls were flying across the turf and on the dirt. They're leaving the ballpark every time it gets into the air. I mean, this was crazy. Like, I've never seen anything like that. I was having a bunch. Hey, how fun would it be, though, to have a team play there? I mean, they would break every offensive record. They would, right? They would have to. Any competent roster would would break or would get near a record, at least. Oh, they'd absolutely break every offensive record. And, And there's been light rumors before about would a team ever be put in Mexico City? Let me tell you what. If that ever happens... Take, go on to every pitcher's baseball reference tab. If you're Major League Baseball and you're listening to this, you put a team in Mexico City, go on to every pitcher's baseball reference tab and just delete the ERA column. Just just take it right out and replace it with XERA because you're wasting your time looking at a player's ERA in that ballpark. There's no reason to look at it because it's going to be, the your ace is going to have an ERA that starts with five. It's unfortunate they would never get a pitcher to sign there. There were, you you think it's hard to get a pitcher to Colorado. I promise you after watching Saturday, there will ne- there would never be a pitcher that signs there. Not you would need to overpay by a hundred million dollars to get someone to essentially do career sacrifice and go pitch there. Yeah, it's never happening. I, I don't know if they'd ever put a team in Mexico City or not, but in terms of an ace pitcher going there, no way. Again, in, unless they think they have a chance to sign another contract after that. And they know that, hey, just look at my XERA. Forget about my ERA. Do not look at my normal earned run average. Just look at XERA, which takes ballpark factor into account for those who don't know XERA. Uh, yeah, this game was crazy. And and the whole weekend was crazy with these two games because you know what? I mean, we talk about we like offense in baseball. This was offense. And game one, more than anything, showed it. I will say if they do put a team down there, I would... I want to go watch a game there. I I, I want to go like I consider myself a bit of a traveler. I I'm trying to go to travel to more places, and Mexico City is one of those spots. I mean, 
First of all, it is enormous. I believe it is the largest city in North America with 22 million people in the metro population. So if you're wondering if it could support a baseball team, uh, yeah, I would, I think, instantly become market number one. Um, no, market, it would be, it would be a top 10 market. It would be a top 10 baseball market right off the bat, right away uh, in terms of economy size and, and everything if you put a team there. So that would be really intriguing. And then the food and the passion the fans have, I think, would, would be really intriguing uh, for there as well. Lyle, before we get to our next point, I have some stats from that game one. They also played game two. Padres won both the games uh, against the Giants down there. The Padres and Giants in the six, uh, 16 to 11 game one, which the Padres won, they each hit back to back home runs twice. First time that's ever happened. So both teams hit back to back home runs twice each lineup, which is insanity. The teams combined for 11 home runs, which is too, si- too shy of the record. Those 11 home runs were hit by 10 different players which tied the record for most distinct players to hit a home run in a game. Nelson Cruz became the second oldest player since 1900 with a five-hit game. Shout out, Nelly. The oldest was, could you guess who the oldest would be? Is it Julio Franco? No. Is it Edgar? No. All right, who is it? Just think of hits. Oh, is it Pete Rose? There we go. Xander Bogarts became the third player to homer in four different countries slash territories. He has now homered in Mexico, Canada, the U.S., and England, joining Tony Clark and Michael Brantley. Both of them homered in Puerto Rico instead of Mexico. So that's something uh, to think of. Here's now where we're going to get into some really insane elevation stats. I don't know if you had any comments on those first points there before we get into these. Just sounds like a lot of offense to me and a lot of broken records. I mean, my God, like you said, this team would absolutely break offensive records every year if a team was in Mexico City. Just wait till you hear these stats. And then you're going to, after that you hear these, you're like, yeah, the home run derby should be here every single year. Brandon Crawford hit a ball 482 feet, the longest home run in the StatCast era for the Giants. And that was one of the first home runs of the game, by the way. Seven players hit a ball 440 plus feet. That is the most in the sing- uh, a single game in the StatCast era in the very first game that they played in this stadium. They broke a record for most 440 foot home runs. The teams had four 450 plus foot home runs, which was also the most in the single game uh, in the StatCast era. And then Lyle, last but not least, this is not official because I'm just going off the numbers I saw on Twitter, but I believe these numbers are correct. Can you guess the over-under totals for the two games? For home runs? No, for total runs. Oh, okay. I think I saw what the run total over-under was in the first game. Let's see. For the two total games, I will go with 22 and a half. Uh, no, it just like guess game one and game two. Oh, okay, okay. So I think game one was right around... 12 or 13 and a half runs for the over-under. And it was higher. Oh, it was, was it 15 and a half? It was 15 and a half. By the way, the normal a normal over-under is about, uh, on the high end, is about eight. Yeah. <laughs> eight <Yeah>. or nine. <laughs> so you could tell right away, Vegas is like, yeah, we're not taking any chances. And the, the, they still hit the over by 12 runs, which is insanity. Uh, and now, do you remember what the over-under was, was for Sunday after they saw that? 
No, Th- this is the one I didn't see. So, so tell me. 20 and a half. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- it, I think it's, it's, it makes the game more entertaining if you put it down there. We're talking, talk about baseball, right? And the fact that every team has their own unique park in with unique climate and circumstances and the ball carries different and the field's different, the shape of the field's different, the turf's different, etc. All these different factors, which makes me think, hey, if teams used to play in the polo grounds in the old Yankee Stadium, they should actually be able to play in Mexico City because that it would just make it so much more fun. The polo grounds is so weird, though, because it's what, like 260 down each line and then it's like 500 feet to dead center. I mean, talk about it. Talk about an obscure ballpark. I mean, who put that together back in the day? Uh, I don't know, but it worked out pretty well. It's a it's a fun park to play in uh, in MLB the show. Yeah, it is. Okay, second storyline of the week. Unfortunate unfortunate news out of the Bronx. Aaron Judge hits the IL. He's got a slight hip injury. Happened while sliding. So he has a minor hip strain, and this, TJ, is yet another Yankees injury and maybe the most impactful one of all. Could not argue that, like, is there a more true value? We talk about most valuable players, and you'd probably think Shohei, but in terms of who's actually most valuable to his team and to his roster and to his offense, I think Aaron Judge has to be number one. He signed a nine-year, $360 million deal in the offseason, and their outfield, Lyle, without him is maybe the worst group of position players in baseball. You have John Carlos Stanton, who's been pretty good this year, but he's only played 13 games. He's been shockingly hurt uh, a good chunk of the time. Franchi Cordero, who was optioned down to the minor leagues because he was so bad. Aaron Hicks, who I saw Yankee fans on Twitter call the worst player in baseball, by the way, when he got put in. Uh, Mariners legend Jake Bowers. And then Harrison Bader. Do you trust that outfield? There, there doesn't seem to be a lot of run production from that group without him. You're leaving out one little minor detail here, so I'll add it for you. Harrison Bader is also hurt. So oh, sorry, I missed that so, part. So yeah, I don't even know who's playing the outfield for him at this point. We've seen years where injuries just pile up and pile up and pile up for the Yankees, and it's happening already this year in April. I mean, you don't have Judge. You don't have Stanton. You don't have Bader. I actually think, like, with Judge and Bader together, I actually think that's a fine outfield, not, I guess, combo. That'd be two-thirds of the outfield. I think those two are fine, but they're both hurt. Carlos Rodon is not thrown a pitch. Luis Severino, shocker, is hurt. Jonathan Loisaga, their top setup guy, is hurt, who has nasty stuff, by the way. I mean, again, it's, it's, we're recording this on May 1st, and the entire team's injured. This was the worry when Judge signed that contract. How is a guy of his size of six foot seven, two hundred seventy-five pounds going to age? Because we don't see guys like that a play b age well. I mean, Stanton is the guy on his own team is example a one of signing that a long-term contract and being unable to stay healthy because there's just so much you have to worry about in terms of playing every day and 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 your bones and you you just you're carrying around more weight. And that really can deteriorate over time and get guys hurt. And as simple as a guy just sliding into second base and you you don't know. And a hip can be something that like, you know, that's something Aaron Judge uses while he runs, while he swings, while he slides, while he walks down the stairs of the clubhouse. I mean, 
there are all these different things that Aaron Judge has to use his hip for. And if he can't ever get healthy, uh, and if it lingers all season, you're going to have to wonder how much that might dampen his offensive performance and coincidentally lower the ceiling of the Yankees, who last year without him missed the playoffs, probably because they're pretty mediocre outside of him last year. There's plenty of numbers that I didn't write down that pretty much back that up. And this year is pretty much the same. And AL East is going to be interesting because if the Yankees aren't healthy, we'll see what the Red Sox do long-term. I don't buy that roster for the course of 162 games. The Orioles, same thing. We'll see. And I know they were a nice story last year. Do they sustain this all year with their rotation? Like the AL East, at least through the first month, they've got all these teams over 500, but there's also reason to believe that some of these guys might start to tail off and you'll see Tampa and Toronto kind of in the foreground and leading that charge in the top two slots of the division. Yeah, it is unfortunate for the Yankees because, again, they have a good roster on paper, but so many of these guys don't stay healthy. I think they have a good roster on paper, especially after adding Rodon. Like here, like remember. Okay, remember with, with Rodon and Judge healthy, sure. Like good, yeah. good, yeah. good. I, I, but I mean, I was, I I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, so what do the Yankees do better than like, I guess the healthy Yankees have a better rotation than Tampa, maybe, probably. Let's say probably. I don't even know about that. Well, I guess I guess Jeffrey Springs got hurt, so that's an injury to Tampa. He got so hurt. Maybe. Rasmussen's kind of struggled in the last couple of weeks as well, so that kind of kind of weeds it out. And Glass now is still still working back to be healthy as well. But I don't know. The Blue Jays' rotation is. I mean, we we watch Kevin Gosman on Saturday, and well, I don't think uh, a hurt Rodon and uh, as good as Garrett Cole's been could match up with that. Plus, whatever else the the Blue Jays have to offer. Yeah, I mean, we'll see how much the Yankees tailspin, if they can tread water with all these injuries or if it really just kind of gets out of control for them. I don't I don't know which way it's going to be because it's a lot of injuries right now. Thankfully for them, they have plenty of time to to right the ship and get everyone healthy. As we mentioned, it's only May 1st, so uh, let's <clears throat> try not to overreact to, to too many things that happen in the first month of the season. Our third storyline from our MLB wraparound is, well... Are we shocked that Shohei Otani set some sort of record or almost set another sort of record? He almost, last week, became the first player to hit for the cycle in a game that he pitched in. He was about 10 feet short of doing that incredible feat uh, and just continuing to do things we've never seen before. Yeah, but here's his consolation prize. While he didn't become the first player ever to hit for the cycle in the same game that he started on the mound... Instead, he becomes the first player to strike out eight batters and also hit for a single, double, and triple in the same game since Dave Danforth of the St. Louis Browns on August 25th of 1923. So if you're looking for a Tungsten Armo Doyle stat this week, there it is for you. The only problem is I think the Angels won that game. Yeah, they that did. He, that he did. So the, the the tungsten thing only truly works when the Angels lose. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Shohei did set some more history, I believe, yesterday on Sunday, where he hit the highest recorded home run in baseball history in the StatCast era, at least. He hit a ball 162 feet in the air against the Brewers. It hung in the air for seven seconds before it clanged over the center field fence. I am genuinely curious to meet the scouts that 
called him a high school hitter when he came over to the show. If you didn't think that he was going to be like this, okay. I mean, it's it's hard for Japanese players to come over here and the transition can be a lot on them because the play level is not the same. But a high school hitter? What are you watching? With his crummy start last week, Lyle, his ERA, and again, when he also had three hits and and made history, uh, what was the stat again? Eight strikeouts and then a single, double, and a triple? Yeah. That was the record? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in in a a start where he gave up five runs in a fourth inning and really blew up his ERA all the way to um, 1.85. Just just tragic. Oh, um, and we have some, uh, and with that bad inning, his batting average against also went all the way up to 102. I just, mean, it's just absurd. It, one, one last thing here. He has an 897 OPS now as a batter, and he has allowed a 445 OPS as a pitcher. You talk about players having walk years. I mean, what Matt Chapman's doing for the Blue Jays right now is a walk year to say the least, and, and an elite walk year, aka have an amazing year before you hit free agency and get big money. Now, Shohei is going to get huge, colossal, unprecedented money no matter what. But is it possible that he's having his walk year right now too? And and yes, he is in the final year of his deal, but having the type of walk year that sets him up for even more of a payday than he was already going to get? I don't know how much more we can raise that bar though. The, The bar was already $600 million. Yeah. If he has a great year this year, would it like instantly say, oh, because of this year, he's going to get 700 million now? Maybe not. And, and maybe teams can only pay so much, although I'm sure whatever his contract's going to be will be record breaking. But it is pretty crazy that, you know, sometimes players can drop off a little bit when there's pressure in their contract year to play well. And he might end up having the best season of his career. It's not for sure, but through a month, it looks like it's possible. The best season of his career over the fat one where he was an MVP and the one last year where he was both a top 10 hitter and a top 10 pitcher. It's pretty, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's pretty absurd. Okay. So then let's end with this question. Then would this be a would this be the greatest three year stretch of players ever had? And I'm including Barry Bonds. I think it has to be right. I would be interested to compare the wars of, the three years of Barry Bonds. Well, which three years of Barry Bonds are you taking? Because somehow, somehow, oh one's getting cut out, or oh four is getting cut out. But whatever. Let's let's just say yeah. like oh one, oh two, and oh four of Barry Bonds to kind of make shift it here, and then these three years of Otani. I would be very interested to compare the wars and see how they match up. Because I'm with you. The fact he's doing it from the mound and at the plate, it probably is the best three year stretch ever. Mm-hmm. You could pick a three year stretch of Babe Ruth too. Um, you could even throw in the, the one where he, he, the one year he did pinch and hit, which was 1919, I believe 1919 mm-hmm. or 1918. One of those two years, um, you could pick Ted Williams, you could pick Willie Mays. I mean, we, we could, you know, we could have that this debate if we really do run out of content, maybe we could spend some time doing the greatest three year stretches, but it's, it's really something to think about because nobody, and I mean, nobody has done it at the level Shohei Otani has done it for three seasons, not at this level. Not not against this kind of competition, uh, and not at the, at the the height that he is doing it right now. It is simply incredible, uh, and it's going to be simply incredible. Somehow the Angels still managed to miss the playoffs all three of those years. <laughs> oh, my money's on that they're going to. It's just 
it's just who they are at this point. It's, it's who they are. Okay, let's get to our favorite segment, a Russell Wilson umpire of the week. Who do we have this week, TJ? We have Alfonso Marquez. He, we did not mention him while talking about the Mexico City series. He was behind the plate for game one of that series, the 16 to 11 Padres win. Alfonso Marquez throughout the course of the game missed 23 calls. Now I'll give him a break. He did see over 230 pitches in that game. There was a lot of pitches thrown in that game, as you could imagine, but uh, he missed 23 of them and had a remarkable 78% called strike accuracy. Uh, And also in terms of total runs impacted in the game, he impacted nearly three and a half runs because of his calls in this game, the fifth highest mark in a game this season. We talked about being 7% below league average last week was terrible. He was 10% below league average. This week's winner being Alfonso Marquez. League average, 88% in terms of called strike accuracy. He was at 78%. I mean, it's we're going to do one of these every week. And I don't know how much else I can provide other than it's going to get to be such a tired narrative that we're still going to just find a way to complain about every week that how do these umpires not ever face repercussions for ruining games? But they never do, do they? What I'm asking to my my brothers at the um, the umpires union, please make a stupid ejection that we can talk about next week. Because as much as I love railing on a good ball strike system uh, and the guys behind the plate, you know, I think I like spicing it up a little bit. I, I need somebody to really take control of a game and put themselves on camera and be like, hey, mom, I'm on TV. I just threw the manager out of the game for something stupid. I think that would be more entertaining. I'm ready for it. Okay, let's wrap it up with Speak Your Mind. Speak your mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. Okay, Lyle, what's on your mind this week? There's a decent amount on my mind. I mean, do we want to save a little Seahawks draft recap and Kraken series recap here for the end? Uh I was going to say you did take, I was going to mention the Seahawks. So you can, you can say whatever you need to say and we'll, we can wrap up with that. Okay. Um, I guess my one other thing on my speak your mind docket this week was, um, I guess you have to put in a little more effort these days on my end to kind of go see some of my friends in person. And I'm talking about the friends that are still around here in the Seattle area, just because honestly, with a lot of the time that this podcast takes up and, and I'm not complaining about it in any way, if anything, I've, enjoyed it beyond belief, like we've talked about, but because it takes up some time, sometimes that now carves more time out of my schedule and I don't have as much time to go, you know, hang out with some friends or even on the weekend. Sometimes we're doing stuff with this podcast, which is totally fine. Cause like I said, I mean, we get to cover the game sometimes now, which is amazing and go be there in person, but it's still nice to see your friends sometimes too. So now I realize, okay, I got to carve out some certain days here throughout the weeks, months, whatever to, you know, at least make sure I'm, I'm still seeing all the friends I want to see because, you know, everybody has to have a work-life balance to some extent. And and not that I'm saying this podcast takes up every minute of every day, but with everything that we do in our lives, it piles up. Sometimes it can be easy to let your social life go. So, you know, this weekend I saw a bunch of my friends I haven't seen in a few weeks and it was nice to see them. Did you just describe adulting? I guess so. I know. Which is <laughs> that's weird what that say. sounded like. 
I know. I mean, I, I guess I guess that's what it is. I mean, and and I shouldn't act like they're just hanging around all day either. They're busy too with schedules and lives. So yeah, it, it is kind of adulting, and and it feels weird that we're the age we're we're talking about that. But I I guess it's the truth here. So that's that's my one little uh, speak your mind non sports topic of the week. I think you can rejoice for this part of adulting, the fact that neither of us are bald, because that is also a true sign of adulting and, and growing up and becoming an adult is when you lose all your hair. But as you can see, uh, Lyle and I think are doing pretty good in that department. So uh, thank you, mom and dad, for uh, for making sure the uh, the right genes, uh, the right genes shook out for us uh, to make sure of that. So it's like it's balding, it's retirement, it's uh, having to go to doctor because your back hurts. But I think we've We've managed to uh, not have to worry too much about uh, about many of those. Uh, so it's a good thing that we sorted that out. Yeah, my speaker mind this week was about the Seahawks. So I guess we could just get into that. It's like it's so it's it's kind of weird and refreshing, Lyle, that two years in a row now they have picked. Uh, like in order, like they picked who they should have picked in the first round and not traded back, like very refreshing. Very refreshing. And look, I don't think we were sitting here last week or even minutes before they made the pick thinking they were going to go take Devin Witherspoon. I think everybody had their mindset on Jalen Carter. I think everybody had been set on that for weeks. And look, all I'll say is this, and I saw a couple tweets about this, and I think it's true. Jalen Carter may end up being very, very good. We don't know. But if the Seahawks had such a glaring need, a defensive tackle, an interior defensive line, some people call Jalen Carter the best prospect in the draft. And the Seahawks still passed on him. I feel like that kind of says a lot. And and maybe there was some real reason for why they let him go. Because they had a visit with him. They got to meet with him. Pete and John have taken guys that have needed coaching up and in the past and maybe had some character issues coming into the draft. But it's worked out for them in the past. This is not a guy they chose to put that investment into. So maybe there's a reason for that. And, and you know what? Devin Witherspoon, if that guy pans out combined with Tariq Woolen you know, good luck to opposing receivers. Yeah, they get they get have the best cornerback duo in, in football. And, and Devin Witherspoon, I didn't realize he's like not that big, but that dude puts the hammer down on guys. It's he's going to be awesome to watch. And he I, the the stat was last year in press coverage last year he allowed one yard, <laughs> one total yard, which is going to be great. And there's the one thing we know Pete can coach up, and it's those defensive backs. So he's going to slide over. He's going to play opposite Tariq, and he's going to do an awesome job. I don't think Lyle. I don't think Jalen Carter was on their board. I think they just took him off. To be honest, I mm-hmm. that's that's the only explanation for it. And that he probably wasn't the only team that happened to. Right? I mean, the Eagles got kind of lucky that he was sitting there at ten, and they can kind of afford it. A, they have Jordan Davis, who was probably amongst the you know a by the way a former Georgia defensive tackle. They're on their own defensive line. Who was probably a bit of a mentor to Jalen Carter when they were both there at Georgia, and he goes now right back into the same defensive line as him. And it kind of works out a little bit. You you have a guy there who's who's helped him out through college and helped him grow up, and you can help him grow up, up in the NFL uh, regardless. And then JSN, back to the Seahawks, JSN at 20, one of my favorite picks. Oh, it's awesome. They really needed a third receiver, and they got the number one wide receiver on almost everyone's big board there at 20, and he's going to fit right in in the slot. And people forget uh, when JSN last played, Jackson Smith and Jigbo played in 2021 for Ohio State, uh, he arguably outplayed two first-rounders, Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. Seahawks needed a third option for a long time, and they've tried with guys in the past, but all of a sudden, 
you got a chance to have three legit weapons in your receiving core. I mean, I will continue to harp on it until the day he retires and probably days and weeks and years after he retires. Tyler Lockett is the most underrated and underappreciated receiver in all of football. He will never get the respect he deserves. You got that guy. You've got DK Metcalf. He does get the respect he deserves. And now you've got Jackson Smith and Jigba to go with them. I mean, you're talking about three guys that could have this offense exploding. I, I can't wait to watch it. In the last game, Jackson Smith and Jackson Smith and Jigba was not injured. He had 347 yards. <laughs> 347. <laughs> Against Come Utah, on. who was a great Against team. Utah. Yeah. Okay, to be honest, half the time he was being defended by a running back who was playing corner for Utah. I do remember that part. But yeah. 347 is still a pretty insane amount. Uh, Lau, I need to get your opinion on one thing. I think we'll talk a little bit of crack and hockey, hockey before we wrap this up. Your instant reaction when Zach Charbonnet goes off the board at 52. Oh, my head just dropped down. <laughs> dropped down, hands on the knees. I think I, I, th- I, I said, fucking, of course, dude, is what I said. Like, such he a, I loves mean, look, his running backs so listen, much. Listen, they, they had a really good draft for the most part, and they made a lot of logical picks, but that is just the most Pete Carroll thing ever. To he, take Zach he, he couldn't resist. He couldn't resist. <laughs> what was your reaction? Yeah, it was it was pretty much the same thing. Now seeing the rest of their draft, they did fill out some some of their other needs, and I think they they just didn't try and reach on anyone too much in this draft. We wanted them to get the the center out of Minnesota, whose name first name is John. I can't remember his uh, his last name, but it's they they got John. The, oh, John Michael Schmitz. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, cool. So they didn't get him. That He seemed like the logical pick there. But then they got the center for Michigan, whose name I actually cannot pronounce. But I was seeing that like the value for drafting him in the um, for drafting him in the fifth round was better than drafting John Michael Schmitz in the second round, which I thought was interesting. Uh, and what's the what's the award for best center in the country? I forget what it was called, but I'm I think he won it too. It's yeah, is it, but he it's won. Not it. the, is it the Mackey Award, or am I getting that wrong? I, I can't remember, um, but he okay. like he won it. Mm-hmm. So and they and they got him there in the fifth round, which is nice. So they address the need at interior. They got some guys along the defensive line. It's you know the defensive line's probably still an issue. I mean, even, even if you drafted Jalen Carter, it was probably still an issue. But they they addressed needs. They got good value out of their players. And hey, they drafted another running back in the seventh round too, Kenny McIntosh. Yeah, again, we'll see what happens with Charbonnet. But you know what? I'm going to try to not let that ruin the entire draft because you said it at the top here that it feels like this was two drafts in a row where they simply took the best players available and guys that could really reshape this roster and continue to help them build and win, which they've got a chance to do now. So overall, pretty good draft. Let's and, give a little and, oh, and, go ahead. and as we thank Russell Wilson for his service every week on this podcast with his do a segment named completely after him, Pete Carroll and company finally can put a bow tie on that trade with Russell Wilson using those final draft picks that pick for uh, that pick for Devin Witherspoon was, was that, was that Russ pick. And so was the, the second round pick with, um, uh, with Derek Hall from Auburn. So they, they use those picks wisely and uh, it is, as you mentioned, really helped, retool this roster 
It has. And let's give a quick shout out to the Kraken here before we wrap it up, because they just took down the reigning world champs in seven games in the first round. I know hockey ups upsets do happen, but the fact that they made it happen, that's pretty cool. It's nerve wracking, man. This playoff hockey is just a different animal. And you can see, I mean, we watched the we, we also earlier in the day, the Bruins who had the best record in hockey history, the most points, the most wins of any NHL team ever lose on their home ice in overtime to Florida. And that that it just shows you that like the Stanley Cup playoffs, you like you throw everything out. You just got to go win. You're playing every other day. And you're gonna, you got to go out there, and you got to win on on opponent size. You got to go win on your home ice. It's tight. The defense is, uh, the the defense is a lot tighter. You're seeing the top lines a lot more. It's intense, and man, they they capitalized when they needed to, and they were able to hang on there at the end. It looked like the Avalanche tied it up there in the third period, but they were off sides. Uh, the Kraken hung on, I think, for the last 14 minutes there, and held them out of the goal. And shout out to Philip Grubauer, a guy. Uh, you know, I'm not not the biggest hockey watch, but I'm watching. Like, mm, it's not not great. He played awesome. He was he was amazing in that game and and really held down the fort. And now it's the uh, the stars and the Kraken. They will have played yesterday. When you hear this, um, they play on Tuesday night. So that's going to be exciting. The Kraken are in the second round, and hey, one series down in the playoffs in franchise history, and one series win. It's not a bad start. Seattle sports are thriving these days. Hopefully here now the Mariners will start to follow suit and, and pick up as May and the months go on because we know they've got the talent to do it. And, and the other teams, they've made Seattle sports pretty fun to watch over these last couple months here. So hopefully it just continues. All right. I think that just about wraps up this edition of the Marine Layer podcast. You guys know what to do. You want to listen to the full podcast. You can get it on Apple, Spotify, Google. And Amazon, if you want to watch us on video, which you should, because by the way, we've got a new YouTube background. It's awesome. We talked about it last week. You can watch the full video podcast on YouTube, on social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube shorts, at Marine Layer Pod. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe to Apple and Spotify. Leave us a review. And tell your friends about us, too. We've had a blast doing this so far, and hopefully you guys have liked listening. So... For TJ Matthewson, this is Lyle Goldstein. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week.